0: Hi, the pub is open. Come on in. Thanks for stopping by. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was having dinner with some friends, uh, professional colleagues that I don't get a chance to hang out with very often. But really, who's had the chance to hang out with real people that's not on a computer screen over the last two years? In any case, uh, some friends that I don't see often enough, and we got to talking. Of course, it's happy hour. And we came to the realization that we all know a good person that drank the bad Kool-Aid. First, maybe we should all agree on what the phrase drinking the Kool-Aid really means. I and mean, if, if you look it up online, you, you see a couple of different references. Uh, a, a person who may believes in a possibly doomed or dangerous idea because of some perceived high rewards. It can also be used to be uh, kind of ironically or humorously referencing and accepting an idea or changing a preference due to popularity or peer pressure or persuasion. More recently, it has evolved to mean really extreme dedication to a cause or purpose, so extreme that one would drink the Kool-Aid and die for the cause. Of course, the phrase originates from the events in Jamestown, Guyana, back in 78. Um, More than 900 members of the People's Temple movement died there. Uh, Their movement's leader, Jim Jones, he called for a mass meeting at the Jonestown Pavilion after the murder of a U.S. congressman and proposed a revolutionary suicide by way of ingesting a powdered drink mix lethally laced with cyanide and some other drugs, uh, all prepared by his aides. Ten years ago, drinking the Kool-Aid won first place in an online poll by Forbes magazine as the single most annoying example of business jargon. Now, reasonable people can agree to disagree on what makes someone good or what constitutes bad Kool-Aid, but I think that most of the good people are pretty much on the same page when it comes to defining what a good person is, what they do, you know, how they act, how they respond, etc., etc. And of course, the spectrum of what we call bad Kool-Aid is pretty broad. But there are some things that stand out, and we can really easily see those as bad. It's really easy to see this happening with celebrities. I mean, they're always under the microscope. You know, All their daily activities are just out there for everyone to see. They're good looking, they're talented, wealthy, they support charities and lend their names or images to worthy causes. Clearly, we think of them as good people. And then, bang, they do something or say something so fucking incredibly bad and we think, wow, they really drank the bad Kool-Aid on that one. maybe they recover and it's just a one-off and it's over by the time we kind of forget about it. Other times, it's just so fucking bad that it stains them forever. All the good that they've built up now is down the drain. But what about those people that are closer to us? Not celebrities, but family, friends, work colleagues. We may know them really well, or they may just be acquaintances, but we put them in the good category. Family probably has to start in the good category, right? I mean, by default, because, well, they're family. Friends that we've known for a while are probably good, too. I mean, otherwise, why would the hell would we be friends with them? Work colleagues are a little more difficult to categorize. Some may be good, and some may be not so good, and we may not be able to tell in some cases. But one thing is for sure. When someone drinks the bad Kool-Aid, we all fucking know it, regardless of their prior status. Now, this is not just a slip of the tongue or a stupid statement. These are good people that have suddenly taken a stance or a position that is clearly the result of some bad Kool-Aid. And it's easy to make some sweeping generalizations on this point. I mean, the idiots that won't get vaccinated clearly have drank some wickedly sad Kool-Aid. They refuse to help protect the general population at large for some really classic bad Kool-Aid examples. It's against my religion. It's a government conspiracy. It's against my constitutional rights. And on and on. What about the morons that supported that asshole ex-president? I mean, they drank gallons of terrible Kool-Aid. And now the mid-level military leaders in Russia... Uh, presumably, they were not all born bad, but they drank Putin's Kool Aid, and now maternity hospitals are being bombed. That is some historically dangerous Kool Aid, folks. Now, back to the conversation I was having with my work friends. You know, we were all lamenting that, that some of our colleagues who were good, but drank some of the bad Kool Aid, they lost sight of the goal, they disregarded the fundamentals. The money became more important than the mission. How did this happen? I mean, when did it happen? They they were good and now they're not so good? Sometimes the the when is easy to tag and the how may be easy to pinpoint, but it's the why. That's what really fucks with you. Why does this happen? Could it happen to you? Will you see it coming? Will you even know it if it happens? Uh, These are absolutely happy hour dissertations for sure. I, I think the key is close family, good friends, trusted colleagues, People that are not afraid to tell you not to drink that Kool-Aid. People will warn you if you stray too far. I mean, do you have these kind of people in your lives? If you do, count your blessings. If you don't, well, maybe you've already drank the bad Kool-Aid. Well, I'm headed to the bar for some special distilled Kool-Aid. Stick around. Uh, We've got an uppity woman story on deck as well. Okay, back from the bar, and I've got a nice pour of a whiskey in our collection here called Glen Ord. Now, Glen Ord comes from the northern Highlands. Um, it, it's a it, this is a twelve year old. The um, uh, you know, it's, it's had different names over the over the years. Uh, people call it Glen Ordie, uh, Ord, Moor of Ord. Um, it's, it's near a village called uh, Mervord, which means more by the hill. Um, it's north and west of Inverness, so it's it's pretty far up there. The um, uh, and now this this area is just beautiful part of Scotland. This distillery and uh, the malting house. It looks over this this barley growing region of the Black Isle. It's not really an Isle. It's just a big peninsula that kind of sticks out into the North Sea. There, the um, uh, um, they, uh, they had their own little dialect of, of Northern Scots there. Uh, sadly, uh, uh, it went extinct uh, about twenty years, fifteen twenty years ago, um, when the last native speaker died. The other thing that's cool about this area of Scotland uh, are the Cluedy wells. Uh, now uh, Cluy wells are, are springs um, that, that uh, are part of the, the, the Celtic um, uh, Celtic culture pilgrimage areas. Uh, people would go and, and the trees that grow beside these wells uh, people would hang bran- uh, cloths off the branches. Uh, Cluy means it means a strip of cloth in Gaelic that 's part of a healing um, uh, a healing r- ritual uh, from back in the day, so th- that 's kind of cool. Now this Glen Ord, um, it's a 12-year-old, not super easy to find, um, but it's not like super rare either. Uh, now this one is is got a really uh, a really deep golden color. Um, you, you bring it up to your nose, and you, you get a, a lot of of earthy tones out of it. Um, you know, turned earth, daffodils, uh, uh, you know, just kind of a fresh a fresh outside. Sense to it, I guess. Um, the uh, uh, it's kind of kind of a medium firm body in in your mouth. It's not like you know super light or, or really heavy like some others. Um, and it, it's got a nice uh, uh, kind of a, a warm, grassy, cinnamon kind of flavor in, in the in, in the back of your mouth when you drink it, um, and a malty oak finish. Um, a really pleasant malt. The um, uh, it's uh, uh, it, it's something to look for if you uh, uh, if you like the, those north northern Highland malts. Um, certainly unique. The um, um, well, let me finish this up, uh, and I've got a great uppity woman story for you. Sit tight. Okay. You know, every once in a while, I I really do need to remind uh, all the folks that come into the pub, you know, just what the hell is the deal with these uppity women stories? So for countless generations, intelligent, articulate, assertive women have been dismissed or worse and labeled as uppity. Uh, And I hope that uh, that these uh, now same intelligent, articulate, and assertive women uh, would wear this label as a badge of honor. And having married a a wonderfully uppity woman uh, more than four decades ago and being a father to two of the next generation's uppity women standard bearers, I I honor all the modern uppity women with the stories of uppity women from the past. Uh, And of course, a a big thank you, as always, to to Vicki Leon, who does all the research for these awesome stories. So, you know, it turns out that not all accused witches stood alone, Um, which is all, you know, witch hunts didn't even end in a fire ending, fortunately. So take the case of of Ursula Fladen, a woman in her 60s from the village of of Durenthal in Saxony, an area of, of, of old East Germany. In 1581, Ursula got hit with a sorcery charge. One man claimed that Mrs. Fladen had given him diarrhea. A second asserted that she'd harmed his cattle five years earlier. Yet a third charge came from a dead man, said to have gotten ill after stealing milk from Ursula. And then the final accusation uh, came from Pastor Martin Heinz, who found a pipe or a reed uh, sweaty and dripping with cream stuck in a skull in the church graveyard. Uh, Ursula said it was bourgeois. Well, I did do the reed and cream thing, she conceded, uh, but only to find out who'd stolen my milk. Predictably, nobody really cared about her milk thievery. Now Mrs. Fladden was locked up and questioned under torture. By now, her husband and a scandalized family had lodged a formal protest against the judge and were doing their own Sherlock work on the charges. Most of the evidence crumbled, of course. The pastor, for instance, said that he'd heard about the sweating read from Ursula herself during confession. So much for the sanctity of the confessional booth. After 15 weeks and a day, Ursula was released. Uh, She'd been tortured enough to cripple one arm and make her permanently lame. Still, the family got a nice warm Columbo feeling after having gotten her out. And after her you-been-sprung have party, uh, they slapped a suit against the judge for wrongful arrest, imprisonment, and torture, plus compensation of 30 shillings a day for each of her imprisonment days. Meanwhile, that that dratted pastor popped up again, complaining to the authorities about Ursula's godless behavior. Uh, Since he'd accused her of sorcery, Mrs. Fladen had refused to go to his services, uh, but still wanted Holy Communion. Can you believe it? Ursula was therefore ordered to attend Pastor Heinz's church. At the speed of a Saxony snail, the proceedings went forward. Since the lawyers defending the judge had such a lame case, they fell back on a good catch-22. They accused Ursula again of witchcraft in order to get their client off on the charges of excessive and unjust torture. Then the judge's defense team got a series of adjournments reaching into the next year, uh, by which time a sorely had tried Ursula Fladden had gone to meet her maker. Her grimly determined heirs, though, kept up the fight. The final court showdown was set for August of 1587, a mere six years after the whole farce began. And unlike an episode of Columbo, history does not record what, if anything, was the ultimate verdict for Ursula. Um, I wish we could have done better by you, Ursula, uh, but nowadays it's a different story. So, Slancha, to you, Ursula. And thanks, everybody, for stopping by the pub today. Uh, I hope you're back sometime soon. Cheers.